Culture Map presents What's Eric Eating? From the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas, here's Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Itai Ben-Ali and Shas Kurgan from Doris Metropolitan coming up in a little bit. But first, I'm joined by my co-host this week, making his long-delayed return to the podcast. He is a veteran uh, of Houston restaurants and the co-founder of the Houston Barbecue Festival. Michael Former, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm fantastic. Good to be back. Yeah, man. Thanks for doing this. Let us dive right into the news of the week. And for topic number one, I really just kind of want to ask you about your experiences working as a server and a manager. Uh, you're currently employed at Killen's STQ. Not that you're not that you're speaking on Ronnie Killen's behalf, but just that you're speaking from your own experience about kind of what it's like to be working at this time with you know the COVID restrictions, uh, wearing a mask, enhanced uh, hand washing. You know, just kind of just kind of talk a little bit about your experience. Sure, be my pleasure. So, you know, I, I went back with a little bit of trepidation to be sure. Um, you know, it's not lost to me that we're working in one of the few industries where we're required to interact with the public without masks. Um, now, that being said, um, you know, Ronnie Killen and Ryan Penn, who's the area director for the Killen's Restaurant Group, you know, they're very clear about not just you know, doing the bare minimum, but really uh, taking part in all the protocols to make not only the staff safe as possible, but all the guests too. So we're masked up, we're gloved, everyone's washing their hands, we have hand sanitizer everywhere. Um, you know, we're taking everyone's temperatures, uh, all the staff have their temperatures taken when they come in that's logged in. Uh, we're always trying to go above and beyond to keep all of our guests safe as well as keep them, you know, keeping the staff safe. And that goes a long way towards uh, making me feel better about re, you know, going back into the workforce, uh, you know, during these times. Yeah. So, I mean, with your mask on and with using extra hand sanitizer, and you feel pretty safe. I, I would. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. If I didn't feel safe, you know what? I wouldn't be there. Um, you know, I realize like some people like they have no choice, and it will be an interesting dynamic to see what happens to the industry after the month of July, when the supplements to unemployment stop, uh, you know, unless, of course, they're extended. But, um, you know, I've talked to a lot of different people in the industry uh, at varying levels, owners, managers, you know, front of the house staff, back of the house staff, you know, and some places are actually kind of struggling to get people back in. Um, We unfortunately have not had that problem, uh, which is good. Right. So, and then just in terms of interacting with, your customers, I mean, are people sort of understanding? Do they appreciate it? Uh, you know, social media always inflates the the very small minority of people who are jerks about making fun of people and that sort of thing. But I, I just wondered about your experience. So to be sure. So, I mean, of course, there's not one uniform response, but I could say, you know, I could say with all veracity that the overwhelming majority of the people that come into Kellen's STQ are grateful to be there. They're grateful that we're open. Um, they have no problem uh, adhering to whatever protocols are in place at the time. Uh, and they're just happy to be out. So they're patient with things that aren't 
you know, we're not running off at 100% right now, but we still want to give people the, the optimum experience, you know, and I think people are just, they're just happy to get out. So I, we have seen, I think, uh, an uptick in more celebratory dining in terms of like anniversaries and birthdays, you know, people are definitely coming out to that, um, you know, but for the most part, everyone is, you know, everyone's been great, you know, it feels good. Yeah, I, I think as long as you guys keep those pork belly bites on the appetizers menu and that smoked chocolate cake for dessert and the and the carrot cake, you'll be all right. Yeah, I think we're doing okay. All right, let us move on to topic number two. Even in the midst of um, the COVID and the restrictions and everything, we have had a couple of openings that I just want to briefly discuss, starting with State Fair. Just opened its second location in Sugarland Town Square. You know, I, Michael, I was thinking about this. I can't think of, like, if you asked me what the best restaurant in Sugarland is, I would not have an answer to that question. And so I'm not saying that State Fair is necessarily the best restaurant in Sugarland. I, I doubt that it is. But just that of all of the potential suburbs where, like, a restaurant dedicated to really good comfort food, like chicken fried steak and burgers and salads and steaks could open. This seems like the most ideal choice. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it, when you look at just the demographics there and what their food is, you know, and, and Sugarland, I'm not trying to denigrate Sugarland as an area, but I mean, there's a lot of chain restaurants, a lot of, you know, sort of comfort food style uh, places. And State Fair does it at a very high level, I think, you know, uh, or very, you know, at least they execute extremely well. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's a restaurant that had an ownership change a couple of years ago. And I think we all kind of held our breath when that happened. But they seem to be they seem to be thriving with their new chef, Justin Yoakum. And, and they've uh, not just held the line, but maybe improved some things and expanded the menu a little bit. And then uh, the second opening I want to note is that the Rustic is now in Uptown Park. Uh, this is the second location. The first one is this uh, massive 25,000 square foot bar, restaurant, and live music venue uh, right next to the George R. Brown Convention Center. Um, and so I, I asked uh, one of the owners, like, what's the, you know, two of those in such close proximity seems a little bit excessive. And he said, no, no, like that's for conventioneers and visitors and sporting events. This is, this is the rustic for the neighborhood. So if you're in the Memorial area or, or even out to the energy corridor or, or anywhere sort of in West Houston, this is, this is, uh, this is your friendly neighborhood rustic, uh, with a $2 million kitchen, which is just an astonishing number to me. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, there are certain restaurants that overwhelmingly make the majority of their money from conventioneers, uh, you know, which means it's a little bit drier in the summer, but then they really rock it out. Uh, and the gallery is a whole separate entity. So, I mean, uh, looking at it from their point of view, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, and then uh, just to sort of note for people who might be interested in checking this out, a lot of their seating is outdoors. It's It's got a roof over it, so it's covered and sort of uh, rain resistant, but they've got, um, it's not air conditioned, which uh, right now I think a lot of people are sort of making that choice that they would prefer to dine outdoors as opposed to inside. And so the rustic with 20,000 plus square feet seems like the kind of place that should really appeal to people. Let me ask you something. Would you say your opinion about dining outside during Houston summer 
has changed from last year? Like, well, you- no, it, I, yeah, I mean, it definitely has. And I'm, and I'm trying to be strategic about it. I mean, I'm going to uh, a restaurant patio uh, this week that I will probably talk about on the show next week. Uh, we made that reservation for eight o'clock, figuring that, you know, by then the sun will have start, will start to have set. It'll be a little bit cooler. Um, not sure that I want to be inside right now. I mean, people can make their own decisions, obviously, but, but it's just my personal decision. Uh, but I do still want to try restaurants. I want to keep supporting restaurants. And so, yeah, I'm going to eat outside. You know, I'm, I'm willing to sweat a little bit uh, if, that's the, if that's the price that I have to pay. Yeah, I mean, last year I would have never, like, no way would I, you know, during, from, from like, May to through, you know, early September, I wouldn't eat outside at all, or very rarely, unless it was a barbecue joint. Um, but now, you know, it's like I <laughs> changed my whole dynamic about that. Uh, and as long as there's shade, uh, you know what? I'm pretty much okay. Yeah, uh, shade, just keep the water coming. That Those are the, the key factors for me. <laughs> All right. And then, uh, oh, and then just briefly, I did want to note that Good Company has launched Good Bird, a to-go-only restaurant that serves roasted and fried chicken. Uh, this is this is kind of Good Company expanding its uh, the comfort food, the southern side of its menu. Uh, I have not had a chance to try this, but I, I'm keenly interested because it is brine for the chicken is brine for 24 hours in a mix of sea salt, honey, thyme, and buttermilk, which sounds pretty delicious to me. That sounds awesome. Where yeah. is it coming out of? Is it a new structure, or do they repurpose a pre-existing so they're, space? They're using the kitchen at Armadillo Palace, and of course, that has extra capacity because, you know, there's not uh, there's not concerts there right now, so. You know, they've got a lot of kitchen capacity, and this is a good way to, to leverage some of it. Yeah, I guess the, the, the verb for 2020 is uh, pivot, and uh, that makes a lot of sense. And I, and I do love fried chicken. I'm, I'm curious to see how it compares to some of my other local favorites. It's certainly close enough to home that it's, uh, it's in the mix, you know, as a, as a weeknight or weekday dining option. Well, you've known me long enough. There was a time I didn't care for fried chicken. Yes, I'll say that in public. Uh, that, of course, has changed. My friends have pretty much beat me into submission about that. And uh, now I love fried chicken. That's a that's that's a good decision. It, it was one of your biggest character flaws previously. Yeah, uh, my therapist. I talked it through with my therapist, too, uh, you know, and they, they got me through it. So it looks like I'm coming through on the on the bright side with this one. All right. And then let's wrap up the news of the week with topic number three. Just briefly, I want to note that the Fiesta at San Jacinto and Wheeler in Midtown has closed. Uh, you know, feels like a little bit uh, the end of an era. That was always the kind of, you live in Montrose, that was kind of your auxiliary grocery store. If if H-E-B or Disco Kroger was too crowded, you could always get into Fiesta. You'd always get a good selection of produce. It's always super affordable. Um, do you have any memories of the Midtown Fiesta that you would care to share? Oh, I mean, absolutely. I, well, when they opened the Fiesta on Dunleavy in, as a Montrose residence, you know, this would be pre HEB. So I guess what we're talking about six, seven years ago, uh, that's now a, you know, a large apartment complex. Um, I mean, I went there all the time. There's living, you know, where I do right now, this Montrose area, there's like a wealth of grocery stores. You know, it's the Whole Foods, Central Market, HEB, Kroger. I mean, it's just, and as someone who, you know, I shop a lot because I cook a lot. And so, you know, freshness of ingredients, proteins and produce is important. 
And Fiesta filled a niche that no one else did. Uh, like when I wanted to make my own chili powder or I was making a specialty disc, dish that, you know, I could go there and get dried chilies at a really good price. I know if I needed, you know, like frozen passion fruit pulp, I knew they'd have it and it would be cheap. It wouldn't be like this high-end, super, you know, Epicurean thing, uh, you know. And so I, I'll miss that Fiesta. I mean, it wasn't the kind of place you'd go and ask for a lot of help and get a lot of help. But if you knew what you were looking for, you were willing to browse, you know, the produce was great. The selection, you know, for what the specialty selection was great. Uh, and I'll miss it. That was uh, that was part of my rotation. Yeah, and it does kind of leave that um, kind of edge of Midtown, Third Ward area without a closed grocery store. I mean, I know HEB opened that new store on 288 last year. I know that'll help, but uh, you know, it it is it is going to be a, a bit of a blow to the immediate neighborhood. But of course, that whole area is in the process of undergoing redevelopment while Rice is uh, transforming the old Sears into that into the Ion there uh, innovation district. So. Yeah, the Midtown Corridor losing a Fiesta and gaining a Whole Foods, uh, you know, is a statement all in its own right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember growing up here, you know, I I don't even think I distinguished Midtown from downtown. Right. You got off the you got off the freeway and it was all just kind of the same thing. But, yeah, I think you're right. I think that that Whole Foods on on Elgin and Louisiana or Elgin and uh, and Brazos really uh, is probably the final nail in the coffin for that Fiesta. You know, I was hoping they could coexist, but it is what it is. Right. All right. That does it for the news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurants of the week. Stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? So, Michael, for our restaurants of the week, I want to ask you about some of the places you have been dining. It is Black Restaurant Week, and you are one of the barbecue guys is the co-founder of the Houston barbecue festival. So talk to me a little bit about famous barbecue and how it sort of fits into the mix. Cause there's a lot of, there's a lot of barbecue in and around the Washington corridor into the Heights these days. So how do you, how do you see famous fitting in? Um, they fit in cause they have their own niche. They're Tennessee, if you will, specifically sort of an East Tennessee style barbecue, which nobody else in Houston is even doing. Um, they're doing pulled pork, which you can find in a lot of places, but man, is it really good there. Uh, you know, they were on the South Post Oak sort of Meyerland area for a long time, and now they've moved over to the Sawyer Yards area on Oliver Street. And, you know, not only is the pulled pork excellent, you know, but you can still, of course, this is Texas, so you're going to get brisket, you're going to get ribs, um, usually St. Louis style ribs. Um, but their sides really, you know, are fantastic. They, uh, they do a chickpea salad now, you know, their coleslaw is good, but what's really kind of set them apart also is Karen Fain, one of the co-owners that uh, developed this dish called the uh, cauliflower burnt ends. Um, this is, there's no protein in this, this is cauliflower. Uh, and it's something that they make to order. So, you know, it's something I recommend either calling ahead or just be patient for them to prep it when they can do it. But boy, is the weight worth it. It is so good. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I completely agree with you that that pulled pork is good, that those cauliflower burn ends are delicious. It's, it's fried. It's got this like kind of uh, sweet and spicy glaze on it. That's really tasty. And of course the, you know, uh, real peach cobbler is a rare summertime treat. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those are not made with canned peaches. Those are fresh peaches. So 
that'll be around for the next couple of weeks till that's gone. Uh, you know, and what's nice is they have some tables outside in a shaded area. Uh, you know, it's a new development area. So if you want, you, you know, feel comfortable dining out, you can dine in still, or you can sit outside. Uh, you know, and to me, it's like the explosion of quality barbecue inside the loop now, just even across Houston is really exciting. And I think they're part of that, that narrative. Absolutely. And then are there, uh, are there a couple other, you give me like one more restaurant that you've dined at recently that you've had a good either dine in or to go experience from? Um, well, I've done multiple. Um, I've stayed kind of in the Montrose area cause I don't want to travel too far unless really, unless it's barbecue. Um, Aladdin, you know, which I was kind of a reticent to go to any place that was buffet style, which Aladdin, uh, which is a, you know, Lebanese or a Middle Eastern style restaurant. Uh, does now they're not doing dine-in you have to uh, order online but i did that the process online was you know seamless it was effortless and the quality of the food was really good uh the baba ganoush the, the that's one of the best deals for a lamb shank in town period yeah uh, unbelievable it's what like 15 bucks and you get a couple of sides and some yeah i uh, think it's actually for one they're running it like around 12 right now oh such it, a good deal it was so ridiculous. satisfying yeah and so i did that and I mean, I got there and they had a whole separate table. Everyone's to go order. The names were on it. It was really organized. And the bottom line was the quality of the food was really good. So I, I think that's uh, that's very heartening to see a place like that. Uh, really, once again, I'll use that word pivot so well. Yeah, no, I, I picked up from uh, Giacomo's this weekend and it had just been a long time since I had had any of their dishes, but they've got, uh, you know, I had to go with the bolognese because I think it's the best bolognese. Uh, and, it's, uh, yeah, their carbonara there. Oh my God. Carbonara is good. Yeah. They've got a chicken soup special that they're running right now with their homemade noodles in it. And they're doing a banana cream pie that, I mean, as soon as I, that's their special dessert for July where they really to a pet rescue. So of course I, I was doing it for the dogs. I had to, I had to think of the dogs. <laughs> Once again, you thinking of others. Oh, that's, I like it. I'm, I'm very charitable that way, uh, <laughs> especially when it serves my own appetites. Uh, I will say the, the one thing about Giacomo is it's so popular that it took me, I had to call like three or four times before I got through to place the order. So they have a, if you look on their Facebook page, they also have a number you can text to order if, if uh, for anyone out there that's trying to get their Lynette Hawkins fix without, uh, and can't get through because of a busy signal. That, that, that's then, interesting because um, Paulie's, you know, which I live nearby and I go to on almost a weekly basis and I feel really comfortable because Paul Petronella, you know, observes so many standards of quality, but I tried calling just the other day uh, and I couldn't get through and I was a patient. I'll call back, but you know what? They called me back when huh. I couldn't get through. They called me back and, and, uh, and took my order. They're really, um, the customer service there is really strong. Yeah, no, Polly's always has great customer service. It's a, it's a tribute to them. And it's, it's, it's always a little bit funny to tip 20% at a counter service restaurant, but I, I feel good about it every time just because they're so nice. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then just one other place I want to mention really briefly is that uh, Anthony Callio, the chef at Rudyard's is he's serving pizza three ways right now because Rudyard's has pizza along with its burgers, salads, other sandwiches. And then he's got pizza and cocktails available from sixes and sevens, which is the new bar that just opened up next to Rudyard's. And then he started what he's calling the eternal pizza party which is a delivery only and only available through third-party delivery apps. 
it is the menu that is most reminiscent of what he served at pie pizza and it includes some of the sandwiches that were on the pie menu so i got a i got a pizza with sausage and banana peppers and a couple other little things on it uh that i really enjoyed and i've you know i've been eating anthony's pizzas since uh i don't know since probably like 2012 or 13 so it's the truck really yeah oh yeah since the truck was parked in front of catbirds and uh, yeah linda and selena's our- pretty much ordered me to order from him. So, yeah, that's right. Linda was a big, Linda was a big <laughs> advocate for him. I'm not, I'm not saying he owes his success to her cause it's his hard work, but no, but the reason why I, I did was, you know, she was uh, the conduit. You know? Yeah, absolutely. All right, Michael, uh, that brings us to the end of the restaurants of the week. So thank you very much. Hey, thank you. Good talking to you. Wish All you right. good help, buddy. Thanks buddy. I appreciate it. I will be right back with Itai Benali and Shas Krugar. Stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? I am joined this week by Itai Benali and Chef Shosh Kurrigan from Doris Metropolitan. Gentlemen, let me introduce you one at a time so people can hear your voices. Itai, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing very well. How are you? Glad to be Good. here. Good. Thank you for doing this. Chef Sash, how are you? I'm doing great, Eric. Thank you. Uh, Itai, let me start with you. Can you just tell me a little bit how the two of you kind of met and decided to, I mean, of all things, open a, a butcher shop in, uh, was it in Haifa or was it in Tel Aviv? Actually, the first the first place was all the way up in the north, uh, uh, north of Israel, uh, around where I, where I grew up. Uh, it's a little town called Roshpina, and that's where the first butcher shop slash restaurant was open uh, back in 2008. Okay. Sorry, 2005. It's a long time ago. How did you, how did the two of you meet and be, and decide to start a business together? So, you know, actually me and Sash joined forces on a later stage of our careers uh, when uh, we were operating Costa Rica. Um, in 2005, uh, we started, uh, me and, and another partner, a different partner, um, small small butcher shop, uh, pioneering dry age uh, program in Israel, which was not, yeah, many people didn't even know it existed. Um, so focusing on, on just high-end meat and dry aging in-house and just selling meat to folks. And then uh, from a few tables, it grew to a real restaurant. And then we actually opened a uh, uh, Another, another restaurant in Tel Aviv, and um, and uh, from there, basically, uh, in 2008, that got sold to uh, a different restaurant group, and uh, we moved on to Costa Rica. Uh, me and Sasha are actually family-related, uh, and uh, my uncle, who is my dad's uh, youngest brother, uh, married Sasha's sister. And uh, at the time, uh, they always said, you know, oh, you know, uh, uh, you, you should meet Sash because he's in the restaurant business and you're in the restaurant business. And it kind of made sense. We met obviously a few times before, but never really, you know, uh, around, around, by the time we opened Costa Rica, we actually seriously started to talk about maybe joining forces and doing something together. And, and uh, that's how it started. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to tell you kind of growing up and in, Ashkenazic Jewish tradition, you know, my memories of meat cookery are basically, you know, braised brisket, uh, flanken, right? Uh, braised short ribs 
and then and and then like stuff that's like very not spicy but spiced with like cinnamon and clove and and you know I, I will say uh, I I love my heritage but uh, you know Jewish Jewish cooking is not when it comes to meat is maybe not not uh, the best series of techniques so what was it like to open I mean I'll call it an American style steakhouse with high end dry aged beef. Um, were people receptive to it or, or did it take them a while to sort of understand it? Uh, you know, I'll start with the fact that uh, in Israel, I mean, Israelis in general are carnivores, uh, eat all kind of uh, of beef in every sort. Of course, you have the traditional, either Ashkenazi or Sephardic classic cooking uh, that is more of a long cook uh, uh, way of, you know, treating the meat in low, long cook. But uh, also grilling steaks, kebabs, lamb chops, all these kind of items are really, really popular uh, and kind of like more festive, I want to say. So um, definitely, you know, and I got to say also by the time that we opened about 2005, uh, by that time, a lot of Israelis, you know, they've all been to the United States or a, a big majority, they've all went to a steakhouse and kind of knew what it's like and that that is basically the type of experience we went for and uh i mean it was a hit when we opened back then there was nothing really close to it so uh, people would drive all the way from all across the country to eat out at, at, at doris butchers the way it was called back then um to, to try those steaks all right and then chef sash let me let me bring you into this conversation so Essentially, your family is telling you that you have uh, a cousin, more or less, that's in the restaurant business. I mean, what what made you decide that uh, that Itai opening a steakhouse in Costa Rica was the right sort of move for your career? So, uh, first of all, when I come from the same background, I, I assume as you, I'm Ashkenazi as well, you know, but I wasn't born there. I was born in Israel, of course. And to, I'm just jumping to your last question. Yes, there is not a lot of Ashkenazi meat uh, delights or steaks or, but when I was born in Israel, we're, we're among and together of all the other traditions. Of course, all the Arabic people around us that were grilling from the day that, that we arrived to Israel, I, I would assume. So you, you get in it in Israel. It's not about your Ashkenazi or, Sparadic tradition, it's more about Israeli, the Israeli tradition, and it's a lot about grilling. Every Saturday, my dad used to grill for friends in the house um, and, you know, doing some stay, making some steaks. And not that the beef is amazing in Israel, definitely a few years ago it was not very good, but, but we were grilling all the time chicken, chicken wings, sausages, steaks, whatever we can, we grill. If you go in, and independent way to Israel, you will see more smoke than than sky. So <laughs> that's that's very traditional in Israel. And and coming here to the state, it's like a amusement park because you get the best meat. You know, for me, it opened my eyes. I learned so much on on the industry, on the meat industry, on how meat should look, and and, and it helped me to develop myself as a chef and as a, you know, I, I work with meat for many years now and every day I, I, I learn something new and see a different breed or a different area that this breed comes from and 
I don't know. It's amazing. So, did you work in American restaurants prior to opening Doris in Costa Rica? No, I worked. I worked in an in Israeli chef restaurant, a very high-end restaurant, a very tough chef that taught us the the basic of of cooking and culinary, and that was amazing. But coming to the state, we never tried to to make an American restaurant. We we tried to come here and to bring our own angle of on the the a steakhouse. And you you've been there. You know how different it is. How more vegetable driven it is and, and more uh you know we 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 dry age a steak and butcher and sous vide them we are very different than the traditional steakhouse well you and know we're I, trying I, to be it's not in i was i was going to ask you about that later but let, let's get into that because it, it for for anyone who i mean i've been there as you know many times and and i really uh just to be explicit about this for anyone who's wondering like it's it's absolutely one of my one of my favorite places for steak in houston but you you don't do traditional steakhouse things, right? There's not there's not shrimp cocktail, there's not Caesar salad, there's not creamed spinach. It's a it's kind of lighter and brighter and and so I'm either one of you that, that just kind of wants to talk about that direction and, and kind of how you you chose to sort of incorporate Israeli culinary traditions into into the steakhouse world. I think I'll just start by saying that we we really didn't want to bring the same thing. We we want to be different. We want people to to look and say, oh, there's a different option. Yeah, it's not the cream spinach, which is amazing. You know, it's good to have it, but it's good to have something else lighter next to your steak. And and we just, you know, from the place that we come from, it's more it's more tradition to put vegetable next to the steak than heavy stuff. So that's that's my point of view on on why we're a little different. I mean, Itai, do you ever do you ever hear from customers who were like, uh, "This, you know, <laughs> this looks great, but I really want a shrimp cocktail." Uh, you know, we get different type of requests, not necessarily shrimp cocktails, but definitely every once in a while, somebody would like to have, let's say, a Pittsburgh steak or or a different sear, or just have something that we serve in a different way or the way they're used to from other steakhouses. And uh, you know, to your question, I think that. Um, Again, um, you know, it's it's. We I don't think we necessarily are. What we bring to the table at Doris is how we would do things if you know, you know, you, you go to restaurants and try different steaks and they're all amazing, but really try to follow what we believe is our, our favorite way of doing things, um, from the method of of cooking and 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 the appetizers to design ambience uh, service style and whatnot um and i feel like the way i see us uh, i mean by serving steaks we're immediately categorized as a steakhouse right and, and of course that is our main that is our main thing we have that dry aging room and, and we are very very specific about how we handle the beef and and do everything in-house from drying it to to cutting it and having a full-time butcher um but all I feel like on other type of things, um, we are definitely operate more as a chef-driven restaurant rather than your classic steakhouse or traditional steakhouse, uh, which there there are a lot of in the market. But we feel like what we do is bring in a different angle to what uh, you know 
is so popular here in the U.S. A steakhouse. Yeah, I mean, was it was it intimidating to come to Houston, uh, knowing that there were so many steakhouses? Uh, th- you know, definitely. It's, it's always there's always that 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 thought in the back of your mind. I mean, how are people going to react uh, to what we do? But at the same time, we're very confident. Um, we opened the restaurant in New Orleans. We kind of knew we in New Orleans, it's such a touristic city. We had people from all across the country telling us how much they love what we do, you know, from uh, New York, Chicago, Houston, of course, uh, Los Angeles, et cetera. And uh, Houston specifically, it's such a steakhouse capital uh, in the U.S. So coming here is also you know, was was kind of a challenge to us for us to see how how we're gonna blend in. Um, and I remember as soon as we announced that we're gonna open in Houston, uh, most of the headlines said, uh, "Do we really need another steakhouse?" And uh, I'm I'm happy uh, uh, two and a half years later to say that you know it's been very very successful, and I think that Houstonians really appreciate. Uh, the type of restaurant that we do and, and really enjoy uh, our, our food and our service and our ambience. Yeah, you know, I, I've seen that conversation online and I I probably have even maybe participated in it once or twice. And, you know, I've just kind of come to the conclusion that, you know, good versions of a classic concept, whether that's, you know, a steakhouse, a burger place, a pizza place, whatever, like they will find an audience and they will either they will either like just carve out their own little piece of the pie or maybe places that are are older and maybe not keeping up with their standards or keeping up with the times will go away. But, but I've, I've really stopped sort of asking that, do we need another steakhouse? Because it's really, it's really just up to the consumer, right? It's up to the market to determine what we quote unquote need. I totally agree with you. And I believe in what you said about standards, places with high standards will, will continue living because, that's what people want in them. They want to. They want to feel that they're getting the best. And it's not only standards of food, of course. It's the. Uh, it's the whole package. It's the ambiance. It's it's the it's the crew. It's the. It's everything together needs to bring you to this point that you love where you are. Food alone won't do it. The the floor alone with all the magic that they will do won't do it. It's it's the whole together in high standards and and you have to have the love of hospitality. That's what I think of. Well, so people and, feel it, and of course, when I think of the hospitality at, at Doris Metropolitan, I think of Troy Yearby, your uh, maitre d. You know, <laughs> how you get into that. Uh, <laughs> do you uh, do you have a good Troy story, or how did you meet him? Because he's he's obviously he's such a a dynamic, outgoing person, and I think he represents your brand really well. Definitely, you know. Um, we met back in New Orleans. Uh, Troy had uh, a very rich. Uh, experience in in one of the uh, one of the uh, a few of the most popular restaurants in 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 Orleans, GW Finns and Revolution and, and whatnot. And and uh, when he came to work for us um, at Doris New Orleans, he immediately you know he had such charisma. And uh, those he came in about the time we uh, negotiated the deal in Houston. So as we spoke and, and, and it became, uh, uh, you know, a common knowledge, everybody knew we we're going to do it. Uh, we started to talk about the option of him coming in and, and helping us and, and bringing some of that 
warm hospitality that that we believe in and uh, i want to say that it was very successful because uh i think there are not too many people who don't know who troy is right now in houston <laughs> <laughs> no i'd say it's i'd say it's worked out pretty well um but just i mean right now when dining is sort of restricted and and we don't have the same you know you're you're limited to 50 percent capacity people want to people want to go i mean how are you sort of meeting that challenge and then how are you sort of maintaining your hospitality even when you're not necessarily seeing people in their dining room i think uh, uh this is a, a question that every restaurateur asks ask themselves every day and uh we are learning learning something new every day um no one anticipated i don't think so at least we didn't uh, what's coming, uh, even though it was happening in other parts of the world. But as far as how to operate day by day, uh, nobody saw it coming. And it's an everyday challenge to to meet those expectations and, and to be ready to react to it. And I think that is what uh, we as, as owners, managers, uh, chefs, uh, ask ourselves daily and also have you know just just conversation about what can we do how do we reinvent ourselves at 50 percent capacity at to-go programs at, at just different uh, the world is changing in front of our eyes and, and we're gonna have to adapt so we're trying to make up for everything every day uh, it's not the same you know we have such an energetic ambience at the restaurant that with 50 percent it's of course it's harder to meet but uh we do all that we can with attention to detail and, and preparation to to meet those standards and then chef if you had to change some of the way you you cook dishes to sort of accommodate to go uh i don't know if to change the way we cook but definitely we maybe change the process as term in terms of if we use in the restaurant, we're sous vide and everything, and then we grill in and put it in the oven. Of course, when we send it to the house, we only sous vide and we give the people all the all the guidelines how to grill it themselves in the house and how to finish their steaks for themselves. Uh, we limit. We we kind of took some plates from the men, back from the menu plate that, that we just wanted to make the menu a little bit smaller and and just on the safe side because where we are we have 25 to 50 percent capacity some of the days we don't want to throw any food we don't want to get rid of things that that back in the days we used to you know sell them every day very fast so you can keep it fresh now i wanted to limit the the menu a little more that we will keep everything fresh we won't have to throw anything uh, you know, just trying every day to to keep us the corona, to keep understanding what what should we do and how should we do and how can we give the people the best. So, are are you are are steaks like sitting in the uh, in the dry aging cabinet for sort of longer than they they would normally because you're just not you're not moving at the same volume that you did before. So in the beginning, when it, when it all started, we opened our butcher shop, so people bought steaks, dry aged steaks like crazy and then that help us to really empty our, our dry age cooler uh, after we started open we just started very very small portion we're, we're aging maybe 20 percent of the of the amount what we used to age before that so we're controlling it better the steaks that we had in the dry age fortunately for us we were able to sell it to, to people just to grill at home so that helped us a lot 
So if somebody got a like a forty-five day dry aged steak, then uh, for for not what that should normally cost. No, they got it in a great price. <laughs> <laughs> I do I do want to shift the focus just a little bit to Hamsa, the restaurant you're opening in Rice Village. Can you can you just tell me a little bit about kind of what that is and sort of how it will be different from Doris? So Hamsa. For us, I talk to I believe I talked to for Itai, me and Itamar, our partner. Hamsa is like a, a dream that we have for a long time. Uh, Hamsa will be a restaurant. I hope I want to say for everybody. The the price range, the the things you can choose there. It will be way more. It will be simpler with food and with prices, but uh, we will give the the same in terms of. Of every dish we will we we thinking of and we'll work hard on and and the service will be as the service in Norris, but the food will be simple. We're talking about hummus plates and and skewers of lamb and chicken and fish and a big brick oven that everything will come hot to the plate. A lot of alcohol, a lot of atmosphere, a lot of noise, like a lively restaurant. And we want it to be simple and lively at the same time. We will give everything to make it with amazing food and amazing service. And that's something that we have a long time in our mind to bring Israel to Houston. Yeah, Itai, I would say that there isn't really a, I mean, you could call it like a modern Israeli restaurant in the style of some of the things that Michael Solomonoff is doing in Philadelphia or even uh, Yotam Odalenghi in London. I mean, do you have a feeling that that Houston is is ready for this style of cuisine? Great question. You know, uh, we, uh, A, I think, yes, I think Houston is definitely ready uh, for a modern Israeli cuisine, if you'd like. Uh, modern Israeli is such a, a broad term, but I think it, it's the one that defines it best. Uh, it's basically taking the Levant, taking the, the Middle Eastern, North African cuisine and, and serving it in, a, in an approachable way in a modern setting of a restaurant. Um, and and like Sash said, I mean, we we've been we've been wanting to do an Israeli cuisine for a long time, and there is definitely an encouragement to see other uh, you know colleagues all across the U.S. Uh, bringing the Israeli cuisine to the front, and and it's really really popular right now. Uh, it's a really hot cuisine because it's uh, healthier, considered to be healthier. Uh, it's delicious. And it incorporates just just delicious food, and um, I I feel that Houston is the place to do that because of how diverse it is, multicultural. And I feel like Houstonians will try anything new you will give them, and and then they just. How do you sort of balance what's Israeli from sort of what's Arab in this cuisine, or or maybe how do you sort of give proper credit to? Lebanese, Jordanian, Palestinian food, because, you know, I mean, I don't, I'm, you know, I don't want to use the word cultural appropriation, but, but, you know, Israeli, Israeli cuisine is such a, a dynamic mix of influences. So how do you, how do you sort of pay proper homage to, to what those influences are? I, I, def, I don't take Israeli food as something that Israel is invented. I'm Israeli, I come from Israel. That's the food we eat in Israel. That's how I call it. I wasn't born in Lebanon. I wasn't born in Egypt. I was born in Israel. A lot of the food in Israel is Arabic food. 
a lot of the food in Israel is food from Morocco or from Tunisia or from East Europe or from it's a melting pot of so many different traditions and I don't take credit for any of them I'm just saying Israeli cuisine it's all of it together with the little touch that we gave to it that that's how I see it I think it comes it comes with the name um, so let's say uh, uh, even even hummus right this is this is not necessarily a Hebrew word is an Arabic word and or if you take the even the the matbucha salad that we serve right now at, at Doris which is a, a traditional Moroccan sauce of, of, of tomatoes and peppers cooked for hours uh, so I feel like any uh, person from that area would recognize the name and know the origin for the most part and I think this is the way of paying the homage and and, and just serving it you know with its with its original name. And then things are sort of uncertain right now in terms of timing for restaurants, but do you have a, a sense of when you would like to be open? So the original plan was to be open this summer, but uh, obviously uh, we didn't anticipate uh, this crisis to happen. And, and now we are, uh, we are shooting to do it towards the, to open towards the end of the year, uh, sometimes around December. But again, we're reassessing all the time and, and, and kind of feel the temperature. Things are very, very dynamic at this point. Uh, so hopefully by the end of the year, it might change, it may not, but, but that's what we're aiming for. Yeah, I'm, I, I mean, obviously you've got to make the decision that's sort of best for your business, but, but having had what I, what I think are sort of some of these dishes or maybe some of the ideas at, at the brunch that you used to serve at Doris Metropolitan, I'm, sooner the better you know, from, from my selfish perspective as a consumer. <laughs> Good to hear. Uh, well, gentlemen, that, that brings me to the end of my questions, unless there is something else you would like to discuss. Uh, I mean, I think that uh, the only uh, topic that, that comes to my mind is, uh, you know, how uh, challenging uh, the current situation is and how restaurants, I find it very interesting to see how restaurants are reacting to do a lot of to-go options, and 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 I think we're experiencing like a, a, an historic point of how restaurants are handling, you know, the, the the new reality of of social distancing. Obviously, different different uh, measures we have to take at the restaurant, and how responsible we have to be for uh, our staff and our, and our guests uh, on a daily basis. And uh, one of the things we experience. Um, is how, and it was challenging for us, how do we translate Doris in, in a to-go, in a to-go version? Uh, because a, a lot of our dishes are, are, are designed and prepared in a way that you have to eat right away. And I think uh, what Sash mentioned earlier, thinking, okay, so how about we do 95% of the job for you and all you have to do is that that five percent back at home so it will be much closer to the experience that you get at the restaurant obviously without the ambience and without the, the, the high-end service but at least from a food perspective having it very very close to what you had at the restaurant um so i thought that was very very challenging and interesting um and i think that all the to-go in general is just something that uh, is going to be more and more popular as we go. Even even if even if COVID will be gone, uh, I think that the to-go, the why to-go options are, are staying with us. Yeah, Shash, do you have anything you want to add to that sentiment? 
No, I, I agree with it. I, I just want to, you know, wish everybody to to be strong and safe and healthy in these crazy times. And, and we will overcome it. It's a matter of time. We're strong. And I wish that everybody will come out to restaurants very yeah, soon. Yeah, no, that, that, that's been my message sort of throughout this whole crisis is that, you know, people need to support the restaurants that they love because if they, you know, if they, if they, whether that's to go or dine in or whatever they feel comfortable with, but if they, if they stop ordering from restaurants entirely, then we're going to start losing places that people really care about. And we've already, we've already seen that a little bit and, and right. Lord knows the longer this drags on, the, the worse it's going to get. Right. Right. In general, we just need to support each other more in all terms. Yeah. All right, gentlemen, before I let you go, we have to, uh, play the lightning round, five easy questions, five short answers. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Are you ready? Let's do it. Ita, let me start with you. What is your favorite ingredient? Meat. <laughs> Chef Sash, how about you? I would say tahini. Chef, what is the first band you ever saw in concert? Ooh, you won't know it. <laughs> That's okay. Forty Sakharov. That's their and, name. Uh, Israeli band. Itai, how about you? It's called the Yehudim, which translates <laughs> to Jews. It's a, a rock band from Israel. <laughs> uh, I, I ask this to people. I get I get various responses. Itai, do you have a favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? Akim Olajuwon. Chef, how about you? Wow. Many. I think it's such a cliche to say Jordan, but it really changed the, the way I thought about sports. Yeah. Uh, chef, do you have a fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a restaurant with a drive-thru. I have many. Shawarma is my number one. We don't have drive-thrus almost in Israel, but you can call it. That's my number one to take in a pita dish. Uh, very good. And then uh, Itai, how about you? Do you have a fast food guilty pleasure? Uh, pizza will have to be that. All right. Well, good. Cause that brings me to my, my fifth and final question. When you go to a pizzeria for the first time, what toppings do you get? You know, I'm a simple pizza guy. Uh, I, uh, cheese only on my pizza. I'm one of those. I, I think, I think we're the same, man. Some, some good mozzarella and some good basil. You got me. All right, gentlemen, give us the uh, the website for Doris Metropolitan and the social media and all that stuff. Well, it's at Doris Metropolitan and at Facebook and Instagram, uh, DorisMetropolitan.com. We have everything online, everything that we do with the current situation, and as well as to-go menus, curbside menus, and everything. Gentlemen, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you very much right, for having me. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. All right. You can follow me on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.